You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We're not talking about taking anything away from you. We're talking about including all of these people who literally gave you what you have. You didn't pay them the right amount of money. For women, we carry the children and then you treat us like crap. You know, enough. Can we just be included? I don't want to jump in front of the line. Can we just be included? Her Money is supported by Edelman Financial Engines. Exciting career changes could be in your future, but what does that mean for your wealth? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Get the expertise you need to help you dream more, demand more, and do more. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. I am so glad that you could join us today for a very special episode of our podcast. It's an episode where we're going to sit down and talk to a woman whose name every single woman listening today should know by heart because she just paved the way for so many women, particularly women of color, to gain a seat at the table to have our voices heard. Ursula M. Burns is the retired chairman and CEO of Xerox, the founding partner of private equity firm Integrum Holdings, and under President Barack Obama, she led the White House National Program on Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math, a la STEM. She has extensive international experience leading large companies that are facing big changes in their industry. During her tenure at Xerox, she helped transform the company into a global leader and then led the company through a successful separation into two independent publicly traded companies. There are so many more accomplishments I could list, but then I know our listeners want to hear from you, Ursula. So welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I love listening to you. I love your voice uh, and the way it comes out. So I'm honored to be here as well. Well, thank you. You know, you were climbing the ladder in corporate America before many women could ever see the ladder. You started at Xerox as a summer intern. Over your career, you worked your way up to president, then CEO. What's it like to go from being an intern to running the whole show? No, when you look back on it, it sounds like a massive move, like a big jump, right? So I started here and then I ended up way over there. But for me, because it happened over 32 years and because it was so incremental and so kind of natural in the environment that I was in, it seemed easy. It seemed not easy from a work perspective, but easy Mm -hmm. from a... The journey, the journey was not foreign. It was not necessarily unwelcoming. It was, I was part of a family that I'd been a part of for 30 years and I just kept becoming the elder in the family. (laughs) Every day I got a little bit older and a little bit more in a quote unquote wiser position. So it was in many ways like being at home and just kind of growing up. I think one of the reasons we don't hear more stories is because we don't spend our careers at one company. We jump around, we change gears, we change lanes, and you stuck with one. I want to talk about your history 
before Xerox. At Her Money, we try often to talk about elevating more black women to the C-suite. You were the first black woman to run a Fortune 500 company, and we know that the underrepresentation is so vast. You were raised in a low-income housing project on Manhattan's Lower East Side by a single mom, graduated from an Ivy League school, and then, as we said, rose the ranks at Xerox. What was it about your upbringing that enabled you to accomplish so much? It was all about my mother. And, you know, so many people speak about their parents, and I want to actually emphasize how amazingly impactful, unique, and just amazing my mother was. This was a Panamanian immigrant. She came to this country when she was 25 years old. She had three children. She had no male presence outside of the making of the children, I would assume, in her life after the kids were born. She made it her mission. I think it was already her mission, but she really enacted it to absolutely assure that these three people that she made were net positive contributors to the world. It was That was it. Her whole being, her whole persona was focused on the kids, us three. My brother older, my sister younger, and I. As the middle child and the first girl, I was the closest to my mom. I you know, stayed very close to home. She made sure that we had structure and discipline. We lived in a very, very, very bad place. When you go there now, you can't even imagine, you know, it's the Lower East Side, it's rich and gentrified, but you know, the Jewish families had left and we were the people after those families. And it was a disastrous situation. I moved to the projects. I wasn't born and raised there. I spent most of my time in the tenement housing until I was probably 11 or 12. And then we moved to the projects. And we literally moved up when we moved to the projects because the buildings were so much better than the buildings that we lived in. It was a disaster. I mean, the physical environment was a disaster. My mother counteracted that with an unbelievably orderly, structured, well-defined, life inside of our house. Literally, it was sparsely furnished. My mother was pretty good at cooking, so we had great food, bad quality, but great tasting. It was sparsely furnished, but clean and organized. We had a fight all the time with cockroaches and mice, and my mother was winning the battle. I mean, she won the battle (laughs) better than anybody in her building. We had requirements about school. My mother sent me, my brother, and my sister to uh, Catholic grade school. My mother made 4000 in her highest earning year, $4,400. Our tuition cost $23 a month for the three of us when we were going to school. My mother didn't have $23 a month, but she figured out a way to get it done. We got all of our food from public assistance. The only difference is that we didn't look the part. We didn't speak the part. We didn't act the part, right? We looked like, if you took us out of the neighborhood, we were well-groomed, were articulate, we had manners. So there's a stereotype, right, of this. And then we came into the picture. My mother was amazing. She was a miracle worker. She really was. You write a lot about your mother in your book, which is called Where You Are Is Not Who You Are. And one of the things that you said, I just made a note, is that you don't do anything that wouldn't make your mother proud. Yeah. It's one of her most amazing trite statements that she said. And I saw it over and over again throughout my life, right? And if you think about it, it's not a joke. 
if you think about it, it's not words to be thrown away. In every interaction that you do, every interaction in life, right? You see a person on the street, you go to a store, you have an annoying day. And literally, after you go through that interaction, you can judge yourself almost immediately. Hopefully you judge yourself more before versus after. But after you can judge yourself and say, wow, wow, I could have done that better. This person didn't need me to be annoyed. This person needed help. They needed assistance. They needed a question answered. They were, you know, so on, so on, so on. They just needed to have a, a bright spot in their day. And so my mom used to look at us all the time and she, she used to say things like, God doesn't like ugly. And what she meant by that, she didn't care about how we physically, you know, our faces. No, of course not. She was talking about your behavior and how you were treating the world. And that was, she was so insightful. In today's world, this sounds kind of cartoonish because, you know, there's so many things that are made up and structured and you can watch like these shows of these fake living. This is not, in our family, that's the way it was. Now it wasn't, you know, we didn't have glorious days every day. My mother wasn't always spouting out these little platitudes about things because they weren't platitudes. When we did things that did not make her proud, that were things that she thought God wouldn't like, she would call us on it. And she would say things like, you could have done this this way. And the outcome would have been the same. Teaching moments. And this is a woman who literally worked her fingers to her bone every single day. She had very little time to have teaching moments. Like I said, stereotypically, she would have been yelling and screaming and hitting and throwing, which she did a little bit of that. She yelled, she screamed, she hit and she threw. But she did as much or more educating and loving and giving us literally a level of fortitude, me in particular, that was focused on me out. How do you control your life? How do you make it better? And in doing so, how do you make the world better? How do you take some control of the situations that you're in in the world? She was kind of an amazing woman. She died at 49. Wow. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it is something that whenever I think about it deeply, I say, what the hell? What the hell? She deserved a little bit more time. A little bit more time. I think she deserved a lot more time. Many of the things that you have said in just the last few minutes have reminded me of my own mom, who grew up in an 800-square-foot house with her parents and her sister in a neighborhood in Philadelphia called Strawberry Mansion, where for many years you just couldn't go and is now starting to come back. And, you know, we're very lucky to still have her. But I think parents who instill in you the drive to make your own good decisions, which I think is what you're describing. Those of us who had those parents were just the luckiest. I mean, I, I was remembering in reading what you wrote about how my own parents never gave me a curfew. They just said, do what you think is right. You know, which I hated, of course. Yeah, yeah, I hated yeah, it yeah, every yeah. time I went out on a Saturday night. But they were always in my head, you know, yeah. teaching me to be my own counsel. We have had such a changing world over just the last couple of years. What do you think as you've been looking at the working world in particular as it relates to women? Do you think we are finally seeing the ball move? Do you think we're finally seeing the playing field start to level? I think we are at a point, and this is very recent, this is very recent, Jean. This is not, 
I think we've put a rocket, a turbocharge behind something that has been coming for a long time. And I think that for lots of reasons, pandemic, technology, just visible, visual injustice, just like in your face every day by the fact that young people are more unsettled, unsettled with capability, right? They're unsettled with capability than ever before. We're starting to see changes that will obviously face massive mountains, right? Forces to push it back, but that I think will not be pushed back. And for women and for people of color, it's a really important time. It's an important time for us to not exhale. And the reason why I believe that we will make progress is because I think people like you, people like me, people like the neighbors down the street, people like whoever, my daughter, my nieces, my son, they will not allow us to forget the past. They will not allow us to see what good could look like. If we shut up, it'll go back. And what do I mean by back? Back created the world that we're in today. The world that we're in today is not horrible. And if you're in the United States, it's actually pretty, you know, I've traveled all over the world. It's in the top 10 places in the world to be, right? I mean, this is not bad. We have paved roads. We have potable water in many places. We have a reasonable structured government, you know, so on, so on, so on. But the issue that we have right now and that we've had over time is that those graces have been built on the backs of people who we have literally left out. So what we're trying to do now is we're trying to live in this great place and include all the people that we literally rolled over, walked on, spit on, literally abused. And it's amazing to me that when we have a discussion about that, that's all we're talking about. We're not talking about taking anything away from you. We're talking about including all of these people who literally gave you what you have. You didn't pay them the right amount of money. For women, we carry the children and then you treat us like crap. You know, so on and so on and so forth. We're now saying, you know, enough. Can we just be included? I don't want to jump in front of the line. Can we just be included? And it's amazing, Gene, how many people have a stone in the center of their chest that says you cannot come in. You do not deserve to come in. I'm amazed at it. I literally think, why? Why? What's the point? I mean, you're right. You're preaching to the choir, as you know, but we've got such incredible ground to make up. It's not just the gender wage gap. It's the fact that when we look at black women, they make just 61 cents for every dollar a man earns. It's the fact that white families have 10 times the net worth of black families. There's this amazingly immense racial wealth gap. I've heard you talk about metrics and how as a CEO of a public company, you talked about metrics all the time to your shareholders. You talked about earnings and revenue growth and all of yeah, all the all the, all the numbers, right? And that that metrics are going to be key in helping us square up. I mean, New York is now making publishing pay ranges mandatory in job listings. As we look at measuring diversity and inclusion. Do you think that this push toward including more numbers has legs? Absolutely. I, 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 
I've said this before, and I'm, I'm going to rant on it a little bit again. I was not a big fan of quotas. And it wasn't because I thought that they were insulting. I just thought that there was a way to do it without getting there. You know, I thought, hey, you know, we say that we wanted to do X, Y, Z, so we should do X, Y, Z. I mean, it wasn't like rocket science. You didn't have to invent a new thing. So when companies say, including mine, when I was running them, that we were going to kind of have more women or whatever the heck it is, we're going to have a diverse board. I figured, why the hell do you need a quota? They're going to do it. Isn't it going to happen? Let me tell you what, <laughs> you know better than I, it didn't. We tried everything. It didn't. Some of it, the women and the people of color not having access to that, not even knowing what the path would be to get there. We have to educate more. So it's on us. But part of it is that there is no path there. The reason why they don't know the path, because there wasn't one laid out ever. And by the way, it was so obscured purposefully that you could never get on it, even if you found the beginning of the path. You could never make it to the end. I actually switched from no quotas to absolute quotas. Let me tell you what. Quotas are the punishment for failing to do what you said. That's what a quota is. Thank you very much. <laughs> We've been saying this whole idea about we want to have more people of color, more women, more Latinx, see everything. Board members, representatives in government, you name it. And we've been, how many years? Hundreds. Right. And every single year, there is a reason why it doesn't happen. And there's no consequences for the lack of action. So what happened in California and what happened in Europe, when they said, let me give you a hint here. If you're going to list, you're going to be a company in my jurisdiction, you better have 30% of the governance structure of that company has to be women. Out of nowhere came these capable board members. Where were they? They weren't just born yesterday. They were always there. So I believe that since you can't do it yourself, literally saying, we're going to give you a no option option. Get it done or else we're going to whatever. Debar you. You're not going to be able to be listed. You know, you're not going to be able to trade with the government. That is proven to me to be necessary to get wholesale and large scale change. As this wholesale and large scale change is coming, there are women listening who want to help it happen faster, right? How do we do our parts as employees, as employers, to just make this happen on a speedier timeline? This is another passion. Ask questions, ask for data. Literally, the number of people. I was speaking at a large medical system not too long ago, and I was speaking to doctors and administrative staff. And one of the questions was about pay and something. And I said, well, you know, you should know that. And a person said to me, well, how would I know that? I said, well, you asked the question. It's how you know it. We were talking about, because she was saying that basically female doctors in this system, she is sure gets paid less than male doctors in the system. I said, well, you can find it out. I mean, just ask for the aggregate grade. And she said, well, once I did and they didn't have it. I said, well, then you ask again and you ask again and you ask again. It's not illegal to ask. They can have a lot of thousands of reasons to not give it to you, but that gives you an indication of the leadership of the place, right? So, but yeah, ask one, inspect, right? Have expectations about it. We have to speak up for ourselves. And I don't mean that in the way of Ursula speaking for Ursula, which you have to do as well, but Ursula speaking for women, Ursula speaking for women, people of color. We're at that point in the journey where 
women and people of color are gonna have to put their neck again on the chopping block and be at risk to be attacked. But since you have the bully pulpit, since you have a little bit more cover than the other guy, just the person who's at, you should use it. We're at a point where I think it's a, a fulcrum point. We have to be able to go on the other side and weigh in for ourselves. So I say, ask, speak up, absolutely. Another thing, Jean, we have to get together more. I am amazed at how alone I was and how alone so many, I was just talking to another startup CEO who reached out to me through somebody else and said, I just need to talk to another woman. I'm like, B, I don't know what to do here. I'm construed as too aggressive, whatever, 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 whatever. We have to get together. I don't know how to do that. This is one of the reasons why something like this, I love to do. Because even if it just has you talk amongst your friends in the cafeteria, that's good. We are so isolated. There are so few of us. And the old tricks, some of the old tricks still work. You know, men got together on golf courses or wherever the hell they did. They helped each other. And we have to get together and help each other and talk and scream at each other and direct and support however we want to do it, particularly since still, and this is something I really want to get to because it gets back to the beginning. We are still the caregivers and raisers of our family. We cannot, in our push for inclusion in the business world, we cannot yet let go of the leadership position that we have in the family. If we let go of that, I wouldn't be here right? My kids would be running on the damn street. So it's kind of a tough time, right? Because we got to do both. And as daughters, we're also often in the position of taking care of our parents, right? It's not just our kids. You know, you married an older guy. And I know that he then was able to step back from work as your star was rising so that he could help out at home. It would not have been possible without that. It would have not have been possible. I agree. I agree. I mean, I traveled for work. I've traveled for work almost my whole career, and I'm married for the second time, but my first husband was incredible as a dad. He stayed home while I traveled. You know, he worked, but he had a lot more flexibility, and he dug in and is, you know, an incredible dad to this day. And I do think that this choice of partner oh boy, is something <laughs> we don't think about often enough. It is one of the other things. I don't say a lot about my mother, her isms. One of them is she would say, Max, be careful who you partner with because that decision alone will be 90% of your happiness or sadness, which was interesting. I mean, this is a woman who literally from the time she was probably 27, 28, probably 29, my sister was born, was alone. My brother, my sister, and I never, ever, ever saw a male person ever in my mother's life, except for her cousins, literally none. She built a whole world with us without any of that noise which wouldn't have necessarily been bad noise, but it was just something that she wasn't willing to go there. And I bring back to this point that women are caregivers still. We're trying to build a structure that we're making a little bit of progress on that include men. <laughs> not just we, but we are trying to redesign society such that this is a shared responsibility, not just a singular responsibility, even though having the child is still going to be ours. I get that. But the consequences of that is what we're dealing with. It's not the, the actual event, it's the consequences of the child that we're trying to deal with. We have to actually make sure that we don't let go 
before something can grab that very important responsibility. So women, as they push towards inclusion in the business world, inclusion in government, they have to build a system for themselves or have a system that they can tap into that supports the family, particularly the children, right? Because the one thing that I worry about is that these children didn't volunteer to come here. They were here. They are here now, right? We did it for them. And we are leaving them many times to raise themselves and to not have access to guidance, to discipline, to love, to support, etc. However they can get that. It doesn't have to be from you as the parent, but something has to be there. I have been party to, so when my kids were younger, we were definitely in the middle class. We were far, far, far from rich, but we were in the middle class and in the rising middle class. And my husband and I were pretty intentional about our children, very. We literally were engaged. We, you know, knew where they were. We, we very similarly didn't give them curfews, but they had high expectations on what we wanted them to do. We had rules about who their friends were. I was around a large number of children whose parents were absolutely, totally absent, just not there. And by the way, the good news about that to some of them was that because we were there all the time, they became our children. You know what I mean? Maybe that was the plan all along. They literally became our kids. They came over after school. They hung out for as long as parents know where you are. Yeah, 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 I think so. That was the buffer. But what I saw was just a run, a run, a run, a run, a run towards something out there and literally leaving some of the people on the bus behind. I think it's very dangerous for children, particularly to be left behind, particularly black boys and black girls, people of color. In this society today, I have a, we were dealing with my son earlier, MIT, three degrees, Stanford, the ultimate degree, yeah. unbelievably successful. And he leaves the house and I tell him to this day, watch it. I said, you know exactly what I mean. He knows exactly what I mean. Nobody knows all of that stuff that I just told you about him. They just look at him and assume something and they act on that assumption. We hear it all the time. So my thing is stay close, buddy. Just watch it. And, you know, I say, I always say, say things like humble is alive. Humble is alive. Mm -hmm. I hate that that is the world that we live in. But we're getting better. Yeah. We're getting better, right? I don't even want to break away from that conversation, but I'm going to do it for just a second to remind everyone that Her Money is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. And I hope you'll join me and award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien for a brand new show, Everyday Wealth, presented by Edelman Financial Engines. Tune in to explore how your financial decisions can shape your life and why wealth is about more than just money. Experienced wealth planners and financial professionals will talk to us about tax-efficient investing, planning for the next generation, retirement, and so much more. It's your money. Make the most of it. New episodes premiere each weekend and will be available on major podcast platforms. Visit everydaywealth.com slash hermoney to learn more and subscribe. And we're back with Ursula Burns, former CEO of Xerox, founding partner of Integrum Holdings. One of the fallacies about very successful women is that they've got this confidence thing beat. And you have been very honest about the fact that you don't, that you still, and you put it, you say you live in your head much of the time, and yet you don't let it stop you. I want to know how that works. 
what I have gotten used to. I'm getting emotional. It's what I've gotten used to. It's this questioning. I've heard so many things about who I am and who I should be, how capable I am, what people expect of me. Most of those things in the beginning of my life were negative, just about all of them were. I remember I wrote this in the book, it sticks with me like you wouldn't believe. A guy who came into my Catholic school, Most Holy Redeemer, I was picked to ask a question and you know, we must have been in like sixth grade or fifth grade or something like that. And I go up and ask the question and it's really good and every, I sit down and the guy who was the guest said, it's a really good question. You know, you're really smart. This is afterwards. You're really smart. You just have three problems. No, you're black, you're a girl, and you're poor. This is a guy who came to the school to say this. He said this. And this I forgot, Gene, for years. You know, I, I forgot. I mean, I didn't bring it to the front of my mind for years. And then I realized one day that those three things, they haunt me. Some of it is a bad thing. Some of it is not a bad thing. Being a girl, you know, I said this later, when this became very clear that this was one of the things I was dealing with, I realized I actually really like this girl thing. I would not pick another place to be. I love being a girl. Thank you very much. I love <laughs> being black. Thank you very much. I love those two things. I literally, that's who I am. I'm very comfortable there. And the part that I didn't like was being poor. That's the part we can change. Thank God, right? Because the right. other two things, imagine growing up in the back of your mind that, you know, you could be smart. He said, you're smart, you're amazing. But, you know, you have these two inherent things of who you are that are strikes. When I started writing the book, the original title I was thinking of was Three Strikes. Because that's what it was. You had three strikes. You were poor, you were a girl, and you're black. How in the world can two of these things be strikes? God made us this way, or whoever it is made us this way. It took a while for me to realize that, oh, wow, you're still kind of working your way through this. The imposter syndrome. Oh, my God, you're here. But look around. In the back of your head, somebody told you nobody like you would be here. And look around. Nobody like you is here. So it must be true. You must be an imposter. They must have let you in. That kind of a thing. The thing that became clear as well, my mother was really careful with me in this. I had, less now than before, the ability to be really mean, to be the proverbial bitch. I literally have that streak in me that I work hard to not have come out. <laughs> and yet you say in the book, don't be too nice. And don't I, and I, nice. I, that got me because my husband says that to me because I think, you know, terminal niceness can be a failure. It is a failure. Terminal niceness. Niceness has taken on a meaning of no confrontation. It's taken on a meaning of um, making everyone feel good. It takes on a meaning of not facing some facts that you should face. It's taken on a different meaning. It's like niceness means this niceness. Everybody has to walk away and go, Wow, you know, I felt like I was washed with love and, and with, I mean, you should be washed with love no matter what. But I worked at a company that had terminal niceness. It was amazing. We talked badly about people, but never in front of anyone else. People would walk into meetings, make a presentation and thought that they did the best job in the world. They would leave the meeting and we would say that was a useless thing. And I would say, why didn't we tell them, right? Not embarrass them, but throughout the process, help them, right? Say, you know, this would have been more effective here, more effective. We didn't want to hurt their feelings. What? 
We want it to be nice. So I think that too much niceness is, is obviously a waste of time. But there's a streak in me that that's why my mother said to me, God doesn't like ugly. And that streak helps me sometimes. That streak, I can be proud of it all the time, but I need it. There is a point when people go one step too far, Gene, where I have to say, this is my time now. This is my time. If a man was saying this, we'd call it strength. Woman is a bitch. I know. I know. You got to figure out where that line is. But I think it's great. I think it's great to have that strength because that's what it is. And the thing that's interesting is we all have it. The thing that happened to me that I am very, very, very blessed with because of help of so many people is that I am more self-aware now than I've ever been in my life. It started years ago where I started to say, okay, Ursula, I kind of get you a little bit. I get myself. I know kind of where the gaps are, where the strengths are. I know where there are things that I can work on and want to work on. And I know where there are things that I can work on, but don't want to work on. So I'm at a point where I'm getting myself. It's such a better place to be. I'm not there yet, but there are a lot of things I want to repair, but it's probably a thousand times less than the many things that I listed on the wall of things that I could do better or be better at. You know, at the end of the day, it's too much time wasted. I literally have a core here. And that is, I've been blessed with great support, great friends, an unbelievably lucky choice at education, unbelievably lucky choice at the company I went to work for. It was perfect for me. Blessed with an amazing mother, a set of girlfriends that are really cool, some mentors that are there. And now it's all about, there's nothing else you need here. It's now all this way. You know, here it is. What do you need? What do you need? What do you need? How can I help? How can I help? And that's tiring, obviously, to a certain extent, but it's also more rewarding than it is getting this stuff. It really is. I can look at my bank account. I can look at my art collection. I can look at, and at the end of the day, I mean, you know this, I don't, I'm speaking to the converted. If you have a, a mother like my mother, none of it matters if there is disruption in your house. None of it matters if your kids are not safe. None of it matters when your person is sick. When my husband died, I literally said, what the hell is going on? Take all of this stuff, take it all, literally everything, and just give me him back in his state. He was older. I know he didn't have forever to live more, but I'll take him back. I'll take him back for a week. I'll take him back for two weeks. And when you get to the point where you can feel comfortable about that, you feel comfortable about letting go of things. I'm not totally there yet, but I'm working on it. You gave an interview to uh, New York Magazine to a blog of theirs called The Cut and said that you wish that when you were young, somebody had told you to just slow it down, enjoy the moments. I wish that too. I wish I had taken more time with the individual moments. What other advice do you have for young women right now? Uh, passion, finding something that you are passionate about is going to save you. It's going to save you because you're going to be pulled, directed, <laughs> molded in all these things and all these things that other people think are good and important for you, particularly girls and women now, that if you don't ground yourself quickly enough to understand what you really love and want 
in the world that you're going to be overtaken. You're going to find it out when you're very old and when you, you know, and it's not going to be that joyous or you're going to feel as though you wasted a lot of time. So one is this idea about passion. Number two, I say this a lot, and I, this is for men and for women, for boys and for girls. It's not about the money. You know, it's crazy. People say, well, you say that because you have money. I started saying it well before I had lots of money. I remember when somebody asked me when I was at Xerox if I would move to someplace. And I always did what people asked me to do. That's one of the secrets to my success was literally, they said, we need you to go to Japan. I said, sure. We need you to do this. I said, sure. But I was asked to do something and it was going to pay a lot more money. And I'll use a better example. I was asked to go to another company. I mean, I was recruited to go to another company. We had to move to another state. And I remember sitting there thinking, it was like at that time I was making like $100,000 and they were going to pay me $20,000 more. It's like amazing. And my husband is the one who said to me, us moving isn't worth $20,000. He said, we are settled and happy. It's not about the money. And that little throwaway, if you knew my husband, you would know how throwaway that was. He said, I ain't going to goddamn place. I'm happy here. Well, you know, you can go yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but it literally stuck in my head. It's not about the money. You have to make sure, I mean, poverty sucks, but wealth is not the opposite of poverty, if you know what I mean. It doesn't unsuck. So anyway, it's not about the money. It really is not about the money. And you have to make sure that you understand that early because you're going to start being given, particularly if you're a sharp woman, if you're a sharp woman instead, you're going to be given choices to do things. And all of them are going to come with this thing that looks green and is this rectangle. And you're going to say, wow, and you have to make a choice. And the choice is, is it good for my family? Is it good for me? Is it good for the community that I'm engaged with? I'm engaged with all of these things. Is it good for the rest of me versus the material of me? Second is that. The third is about, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Your partner is unbelievably important. And this thing called love is about 90% of it. In my bad days, I say it's 10%. But it's, I, say, <laughs> I was going to say, eh, eh. yeah, I, I'm, trying to be, I'm trying to be hopeful for the younger generation. My husband and I, if you were a fly on the wall in our family, my daughter, my husband, me and my son, and a dog, always a dog, and some other living things all over the house, fish and rabbits and whatever the hell we had in the house. You would say this is the craziest, most dysfunctional, argumentative family in the world. We argued about everything. We argued, we debated, we would watch Jeopardy. We had dinner together, we watched Jeopardy and have like before the answer, no, it's wrong. How could you think it's that? You know? <laughs> the reason why we were able to stay together, my husband and I, is because I loved him more than I was in love with him or as much as I was in love with him, if you know what I mean. I was in love with him in the beginning and loved him. And then it moved to, of course I'm in love with him, but I loved all of the things about him. I loved even the things that were horrible. He was messy as all outdoors. I mean, really, and I am an organized person. He was messy and disorganized. I would have these things like maybe I should leave, maybe I can't live. And I realized he was exactly what I needed. He made it possible for me to be me by him being him. So find someone that through all of it, the good and the bad, that has your back and that you can exhale with. 
and who adds more than they take away from you. My mother would always say, you could do bad alone. She would say to all of them, you could do bad alone. You don't need anybody to enter your life and help you do bad. You could do bad alone. And she was right. So finding a partner that is your partner is really an important thing. And it's not to be taken lightly. And then the fourth thing is, uh, maybe it's the fifth thing, you got to work hard. Mm -hmm. There is no substitute for grinding it out. It makes you feel as though you earned it, and it makes other people see that you've earned it, and it also gives people an example. This idea that there's a quick fix here, so I'm going to jump from first base all the way to third base without passing second, just doesn't work out. You can do it like for small jumps, but you got to work your way through things. You know, you cannot be a great leader without understanding the people who you are leading and at certain times following what they do, what they go through, who they are. One of the things about public office, people say to me, you should run, you should run, you should run, you should run for me, you should run for them. You know, never say never, but this is a never. (laughs) This is a never. What has come to now, it is literally a referendum on a personality. Think about leading 350 million people what does it mean to do that? How complete of a person and good of a person should you be? So it's about hard work. It's about learning a lot about people. It's about leadership. It's grinding it out. It's, it's just kind of going at it. And we are not teaching that as much as we taught it before. I, if you look at politics now, it is in some ways scary. Who can become anything? You know, they, yeah. it's just amazing. They'd ask me to do something. I say, well, <laughs> I can't do that. They say, well, I said, I know nothing about that. I know nothing about it. Become the secretary of uh, transportation. Hmm, interesting. I know nothing about transportation. Right. No, I hear you. I think you're absolutely. Don't you think somebody should know about it? You know, there's some governments who do this a lot better than we do. We actually train leaders and for public service, not us. We don't do that. We train leaders for self-service. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I actually think that this notion of paying your dues, which is just something that I feel like I definitely did, that I believe in. It is, right? (laughs) You feel like if you're suggesting that people in your organization should have to pay their dues, that's an issue. Yeah. Yeah. And it shouldn't be. And it shouldn't be. And I'll tell you what, I'll give you the example that one of our most recent presidents, not the current one, said, you know, only fools pay their taxes. Mm. Now, you know, I thought about that a lot and said, that's one of the most dangerous statements that a leader, think about this. There's two structures in the world. There's a structure for the fools who follow the law or the system that as it was structured. And then there's a structure for the other guys who actually don't do any of that crap and who get all of the benefits of it. Where are you going to run? You're going to run to that place. You're not going to run to this. You know, it's like you're married. You've made this promise to this person. And you say, yeah, I can just cheat all day and all night. Yeah, you can. But the question is, why? (laughs) Why why did you do that? I think we're complicating things that should be pretty straightforward. I, I, I mean, pay your taxes. I don't think you should be abused by your taxes, which I think some of the systems are now. You can do it the right way, though. If you're not going to do move to the right place, whatever the hell it is, you should vote. you got the right to vote. You should vote. If you're not going to vote, don't vote. But don't complain, right? <laughs> There's so many things that are like 
follow the law. You know, I'm on the road many, many, many nights with nobody on the road with me, and I still drive close to 55 or 65 miles an hour. We don't go 150 just because nobody's watching. Right. You know, I still drive with my seatbelt on because, well, yeah, it's smart to do, right? We don't not have it on because there's no police people checking. There are things that we do because it is good for order and good for society, right? And we have structured a, a set of beliefs right now that those are for the dumb guys. Why the hell would you drive at 55 if you can drive at 70? What the hell's wrong with you? Why pay tax? You didn't pay your taxes? You're going to follow the law? You know, what's the point? And the point is that we all live here together. We don't live here alone. There are 300 million of us in this country, 7 billion of us plus in this world. We have to have some control, some order, some consideration for others. And we seem to be believing now and teaching that that consideration is weakness. I'm worried about it. I'm worried about it. I'm right there with you. But I hope that this conversation actually can maybe change some minds or can get people just thinking. Thinking, about, that's all it is. Thinking, think, thinking about think. maybe changing their minds. Your book is phenomenal. Thank Where you, so much. you are is not who you are. And I just want to give a shout out. I know that a lot of our amazing listeners have book groups. This is a great book group book. Thank you. This is a book that you can read and then you can discuss and there is so much in there to take away. Ursula Burns, you're amazing. I thank you so much for spending this time with me and with all of us. It's such an honor and a pleasure. I had a great hour. Thank you. I mean, it really brightened my day and it'll brighten next week since we're into Friday. Thank you so much. And I'm such a fan. Oh, well, right back at you. Thank you. We had so much to dig into in that conversation. Catherine and I made the decision we're just going to release a bonus mailbag this week. We'll let this episode stand for itself. But before I leave you, I just want to remind everybody, Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU helps us make this program possible. What's BCU? It's a credit union that helps its members feel confident and assured with the peace of mind that comes from making smart financial decisions. Visit bcu.org to learn about ways to secure your financial future. Thank you so much for listening today to the Her Money podcast. Thank you to our sponsors, BCU and Edelman Financial Engines. If you like what you hear, I hope that you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to remind everyone we produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper. Our show comes to you through Megaphone. Catherine Tuggle is our amazing producer. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon. 